Welcome, or welcome back, wherever in space-time you may be. This is Stranger Than. I'm Joanna. I'm Nate. We are a podcast discussing unsolved mysteries, weird occurrences, misunderstood phenomena, and creepy happenings. As always, the Stranger Than podcast logo art is brought to you by Cthulhu Art. The link is in the show notes. We come back to you today with Christopher, new guy from Pill Brigade. Top of the morning to you. So good to have you back. It's something. (laughs) And we'll be talking to you again about some uh, instances of kind of satanic panic, really. Mm -hmm. Uh, This time, what do you have for us, Joanna? Um, I have uh, just a few cases. Probably the most well-known of them would be the case of the West Memphis Three. And then a couple other ones that might be a little bit lesser known. And new guy, you got some shit for us as well? Yeah, I did some reading on the West Memphis 3 uh, case also, because I didn't really know all the details to it back in the day. But then I also uh, dove into a little more research on how the satanic panic came up through the heavy metal scene and stuff, too. And it was kind of parallel to the daycare stuff that we were talking about on the last episode. All right. Well then, which one shall we start with, Joanna? One I start out with uh, talking about one, uh, maybe a lesser known case. Um, this is about a guy, Cameron Todd Willingham, who was in a nutshell found guilty of burning his three daughters to death and was sentenced to death in the state of Texas. And Wow. Yeah, and executed himself for the crimes. Damn. Yes. But at following his death, a lot of information came out, and even really sadly, a little bit prior to his death, a lot of this information came to light about the arson investigation. But it basically came a little bit too late, and he was executed, and then more information has come out since to show that Probably this guy did not, in fact, um, intentionally set fire to his house and kill his children. Great. But he's already dead. So, But he's already dead. Yeah, they and already so executed they, him. So. On December 23rd, 1991, a fire destroyed the Corsicana, Texas home that Cameron Todd Willingham, who was 23 at the time, shared with his wife, Stacy, who was 22, and their three daughters, Amber, age two. And Carmen and Cameron, who were twin girls, both aged one. Willingham was asleep when the fire started, and he survived. His wife was not home at the time. She had gone to get some gifts, some Christmas gifts, for their kids at the Salvation Army. So the two witnesses to the fire were Buffy Barbie, who was 11 at the time, She was playing in her backyard when she smelled the smoke from the fire. She ran inside and told her mother, Diane, and they both ran to Willingham's house where they saw him standing on the front porch wearing just jeans, and his chest and face were black with soot. His hair was singed. Yeah. He was screaming, my babies are burning up. 
Diane left at that point to help to summon help while Willingham used a stick to try and break the children's bedroom window out. When he broke out the bedroom window, flames burst through it as well as another window that he broke out. He then fell to his knees in the yard and seemed to be kind of in a trance. Another neighbor told police that he would kind of intermittently cry, my babies, my babies. Shortly after this, firefighters arrived and Willingham shouted to him that his children were trapped inside their bedroom. When they entered the house, one of them noted that there was a refrigerator nearly blocking the back door to the house. Really? Like nearly blocking it or? Where it was like you were just barely able to squeeze by it. I see. That was good thinking on someone's part. (laughs) Yeah, there was like a lot of unfortunate thinking, I think, going on in that home. But the refrigerator is kind of important because they kind of later use that as evidence that he intentionally blocked the back entrance so people couldn't get out. Right, right. Later, it comes to the fact that they had two refrigerators and it's a tiny little fucking house. So the placement of a refrigerator really didn't have anything to do with the fire. Right. It was just... It It was just there and they didn't have very much space. Yeah. Yeah. Relatable. So while the firefighters were um, trying to get to the children, uh, there was a police chaplain named George Monaghan and he was basically trying to help Willingham calm down. Willingham told Monaghan that he had been awoken by his two-year-old daughter screaming, Daddy, Daddy. Oh, great. He said, my little girl was trying to wake me up and tell me about the fire. I couldn't get my babies out. It was then that a fireman came uh, from the house holding Amber, who was unresponsive. How are you even, like, doing research on this, Joanna? Because this is, like, your worst fucking fear is the whole, like, fire thing. Right, with the kids in the house. Yeah, well, you know, I originally heard this story, I think, on My Favorite Murder. Oh, And it kind of sparked my interest because, yeah, I mean, fire is fucking horrible. Yes, yes. And, and... like, that is basically my worst nightmare is my kids being trapped in a fire. Yeah. And, but then all the, um, just the evidence pointing to the fact that maybe he had actually been innocent of the charges and that he had been executed. And then when we were doing the satanic panic... This kind of um, pinged again on my radar because it, it's going to come to light later when the fire investigators are looking through the house. Some of the stuff that they find kind of like leads them to point the finger that like, well, probably he worships Satan. And oh. this is why he wanted to burn his children up. But so, we'll get into that. We'll get into yeah, that we'll later. get into that. Laying the foundation. They start giving CPR to Amber. And at that point, Willingham kind of bolts and tries to get back into the house and the fireman on the scene had to basically restrain him and actually put him into handcuffs because he was just kind of out of his mind. Yeah. Obviously. Yeah. Freaking out. Yeah. Totally freaking out. Yeah. So at that point they went ahead and took him to the hospital. And when he was in the hospital, that's when he was told that Amber had actually been found in the master bedroom in his bedroom, not hers. And she had died of smoke inhalation. The twins, Cameron and Carmen, were found in the bedroom. Their bodies were severely burned, but it was later determined that they, too, had died of smoke inhalation. Hopefully they had been burned after they yes, had died already. Yes, one, one would hope that. Yeah. Yikes. 
it's the smoke inhalation that gets you during a fire too. Yeah. Yeah. And hopefully before you start burning up. Yeah, definitely. If you're lucky. If you're lucky. Again, just awful. The initial investigation into the fire was done by a guy named Douglas Fogg, who was a firefighter with 20 years experience and had become certified as an arson investigator. Was he also an expert in Satanism? No, he was not an expert in Satanism. Are we sure? I don't think many people are, even I those that claim to be. He's he not was joined. As many as claim. <laughs> <laughs> he was joined by a deputy fire marshal named Manuel Vasquez, who was considered one of the leading arson investigators in the state. I don't know who considered that exactly, but someone, someone Is there did. A panel that determines it. Well, you know. There's actually, when I was reading about this, um, to become a certified arson investigator, it's actually not all that hard. It's like like a 40-hour course. And this guy, Hurst, who looks at the evidence right before uh, Willingham gets executed and following it, uh, he had a lot to say about just... Uh, arson investigation tactics in general and that a lot of it was kind of like passed down from old timers and there's like so much stuff that they still like believe to be true that has been actually scientifically disproven oh. but the education uh, to become an arson investigator is pretty poor and so <laughs> this isn't something that's kind of like universally like taught to everyone and right. yeah it it just kind of varies from county to county and so i can't even imagine how many cases are out there where it was determined that a fire was arson when in fact it wasn't but because they're going off of these kind of like old wives tales on just like shit on how fire found. works yeah <laughs> oh man so it looks says here that there is a demon that came up from hell and that demon is why this building caught on fire. And so, no, this is not arson because the law clearly states you cannot prosecute supernatural beings. This is deemed natural causes. Natural <laughs> fucking causes. So this guy Vasquez, he claimed that he's, I don't know, he, he felt he was sort of like a guru when it came to arson investigation. Right. Of course. He had a few... Uh, Favorite catchphrases such as, fire does not destroy evidence, it creates it. And the fire tells the story, I am just the interpreter. Personally, I think this guy watched Backdraft one too many times. Yeah. Yeah. So he kind of considered himself the um, be-all and end-all of arson investigation. Bullshit artist. <laughs> Yeah, you know, a lot of mistakes happen when people get a little too confident and cocky about right. their level of expertise and like, something. No, 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 I am the best. When Vasquez is examining the house for evidence, he made note of the refrigerator and that there was just enough space to squeeze past the refrigerator, blocking the back door. Once he went into the utility room, he noticed that on the wall were pictures of skulls and what he later described as an image of the Grim Reaper. No shit. No shit. Hmm. So, obviously, you know, right there, it's like, oh, okay. 
yeah. clearly this is a bad guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. As they go through the house, here are some of the, the things that Fogg and Vasquez claim to be evidence that the fire was intentionally lit. First of all, there is several um, char patterns on the floor, kind of puddle-shaped. And they stated that those were poor patterns. Of like gasoline or something like that, yeah. some sort of accelerant. Yeah, indicating that some sort of accelerant had been used. Yeah. The broken windows from the bedroom had spider-like patterns on them. Okay. And this is what they referred to as crazed glass. And they stated that that only happens when a fire burns quick and fast, also evidence that an accelerant was used. Right, right, because an accelerant, as the name suggests, it accelerates accelerates flame. (laughs) (laughs) They also stated they found several V patterns. And a V pattern, I I first learned about the V pattern when I was... uh, Junior high? No. (laughs) (laughs) No, you remember that? Not that V. Hearing about that one guy, that one firefighter that was actually setting his own fires. I don't. Oh, I yeah. Don't. Well, he was like renowned for arson investigation, too. Oh, really? And he was the guy who could always find the V pattern. And you, there's pictures of him actually pointing out like the V pattern in like a field. And he had like set the own, his own fires. So, so he knew exactly. So he knew yeah. exactly where the point of origin was and could find that V pattern anywhere because he, was setting the he had inside information. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it wow. took a long time. And I think one of the fires that he set at a store actually ended up killing a couple of people. So... Yeah, luckily, were... luckily, they were able to find this out eventually, and uh, the guy's now behind bars. But, yeah. That's that's good. That's <laughs> good. Another bullshit artist. Yeah. So, the thing with the V pattern is that basically, um, when something catches on fire, uh, the heat and smoke radiate outward, and that creates the V pattern. Right. It's a literal V pattern. Mm-hmm. And so, it's used to try and pinpoint where the fire began. So Fogg and Vasquez said that they found V patterns in three different areas of the home, in the hallway, in the children's bedroom, and at the front door. So all this kind of led them to conclude that the fire was set intentionally. Right. They were set stages, like on the way out of the house, basically. Yeah. So basically they were saying that he had taken some sort of liquid accelerant and poured it in several areas of the house, the children's bedroom, the hallway, and then the front entrance to the home. Yeah, yeah. I think he had started with the children's bedroom. Lit that one. Gone out to the hallway. Lit that one. And to the front door and then exited himself before starting the fire. Right, right. For igniting it. So since the mother, Stacy, wasn't at home at the time and only Willingham was, obviously he became the main suspect yeah yeah so they bring him in for questioning uh vasquez and fogg were both present during the interrogation in his statement willingham said that stacy had left the house around 9 a.m to pick up a christmas present for the kids at the salvation army and that he had gone back to sleep after she had left he said the next thing i remember is hearing daddy daddy and the house was already full of smoke He said that he got up and felt around on the floor for a pair of pants and put them on. He could no longer hear his daughter's voice, and he yelled, Oh God, Amber, get out of the house. Get out of the house. Now, he never 
sense that Amber was actually in the room with him, but that's where her body was found. Right. So it's possible that maybe after she had cried out to him, she passed out from smoke inhalation. Yeah, it wouldn't that take seems much from logical. Yeah, a little body like that. He went on to say that he went down the corridor and tried to reach the children's bedroom, but that he couldn't see anything but black. He then felt himself passing out from the heat, and he couldn't take it anymore, and so he stumbled out of the hallway, out the front door, trying to catch his breath. At that point is when he saw Diane Barbie, the neighbor, and yelled for her to call the fire department. So when they asked him if he had any idea how the fire started, he said that he wasn't sure, but he stated that there were three space heaters in the house. One of them was in the children's bedroom. Ah. Yeah. Was another one uh-huh. in the hall? I don't know where the other two were located. The other one was by the front door. But he stated that he saw bright lights coming from the children's bedroom when he had stumbled out in the hallway. And also, when he was in the hallway, he had heard lots of like the light sockets like popping and exploding. So he said maybe it was electrical. Okay. Now, Vasquez had testified, or would later testify, that when he checked the space heater in the children's bedroom, it was in the off position. However, his wife, Stacy, would later say that that, that that didn't make any sense because it was a cold morning and she was sure that the space heater in the children's bedroom was on when she left. So she would have, like, turned it on or whatever because it was cold as shit? Yeah. They used it to heat their house, basically. Yeah. Yeah. So at this point, investigators are pretty convinced that he intentionally set the fire, not so much because of his testimony, but because of uh, Vasquez and Fogg's report. Yeah, because of what they the what they saw when they investigated, what they believe they saw. Lead. Right, and so there really, but there really was no clear motive as to why he would decide to do this. But they decided to charge him with triple murder, anyways based on the fact that the investigators said that it was definitely arson. Yeah, I guess they wanted to close the case. And if they didn't have any other, they have to make it all fit together. Yep. So the the district attorney that prosecuted the case, his name was John Jackson. He basically said that uh, Willingham was an utterly sociopathic individual and that his children were an impediment to his lifestyle. And that was his reason for killing them. Well, <laughs> so they just cramped his style is, is what they said. Basically, yeah. And he'd had a kind of a rocky relationship with his wife, Stacy. Like they both kind of had trouble backgrounds and he had hit her, which he admitted to. But Stacy said that he had never hurt the children and that she believed that the fire was an accident. Yeah, yeah. So she didn't, even though she wasn't very fond of him, she didn't believe that he was capable of killing their children. Right. A douchebag, but not a killer. Exactly. So they arrest Willingham and they put him in jail, awaiting his trial. Now, while he is in jail, this other inmate named Johnny Webb steps forward and says that Willingham confessed to him. So we have a, one of those good old uh, oh, jailhouse yeah. informant situations oh, yeah. going on. Okay. It's like, I, you know, I don't know why they even allow that at this point. Yeah, because they'll say anything. Right. Because like, they're looking, to, they're like, I want to get out of prison. Yeah. 
what you need to know. I got gotcha. you. Yeah, right. You exactly. I mean, I just I feel like nothing any to jail house informant. It should just it just should just not be allowed at all. Almost nothing to lose and lots to gain. I mean, if you want to listen to what they have to say, fine, but you should uh, treat it like a lie detector test, uh, not admissible in a court of law. Definitely. And apparently arson investigation shouldn't be admissible in court either. Right. Yeah, well, I mean, there's like this whole weird thing, too, with like the, um, where they were trying to get with like the Supreme Court that they didn't have to like use science, like science-based methods to prove their expertise in arson investigation yeah (laughs) you don't have to use science-based methods right right because it's all just kind of like you know oh it's their field is so unique and their interpretation of fire is just you know there's there's no room for science in that (laughs) right yeah i mean no this is like i said the demons we can't prosecute demons you were the proper owner of the house, or your name was on the lease, or whatever, and so that's what you get. Yeah, basically. So anyway, this this uh, shitbag, Johnny Webb, basically said that Willingham had confessed that he had lit the fire himself. In his statement, though, he said that Willingham had told him that Stacy had hurt the children, and he had lit the fire to cover up that crime oh so now but that i i mean so, so johnny webb is now saying that the guy's wife had hurt the children and he lit the fire to cover up her indiscretion right exactly okay now the plot thickens right well or it's just like why the fuck did the, anyone even like buy into this because first of all she was not home at the time of the fire second of all the autopsies showed that there wasn't um, any damage to the children. Like, there was no signs of abuse. Right. There wasn't, like, there wasn't broken any, bones yeah. or, or whatever. Nothing had happened to them other than the fact that they died from smoke in- inhalation. Yeah. And the burns. Well, yeah. But, but but I guess it was, you know, whatever the autopsy showed, it was it definitely didn't show any other signs of abuse. Right, yeah. So I don't even know why the fuck they they listened to this guy and allowed his testimony to be let in. (laughs) Yeah. So Johnny Webb is, yeah. Other than it just, you know, kind of helped bolster their totally, you know. Their case. Case that had, like, basically nothing (laughs) other than what these arson investigators found. His name kind of gives it away to Johnny Webb. Johnny Webb and his web of lies. Yeah. They call him the spider. (laughs) (laughs) So, prior to trial, the prosecuting attorney's office wants um, Willingham to take a plea agreement, and his state-appointed defense attorneys also wanted him to take the same plea agreement, which would be life in prison, so they would remove the death penalty. Since it was a triple homicide, obviously, yeah, death penalty was on the table being that it was texas and all oh yeah and so they're like no man if you just like we'll take it off the table we're not going to kill you you get life in prison and even his own lawyers didn't uh believe that he was innocent yeah they're like no this guy guy fucking did it (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah dude your choice is either you live behind bars or you die but willingham refused to accept the offer and he said, I'm not going to plead to doing something I didn't do, especially killing my own kids. And that was his final decision. Yeah, no shit. 
So in August 1992, uh, the trial started. The arson investigator, Vasquez, told the courts about the 20 different indicators of arson that he had discovered during his investigation. And some of the witnesses who had previously stated that um, Willingham seemed really distraught. Right. That would include uh, Diane Barbie and the chaplain Monahan. They kind of changed their testimony at that point. Really? Now that he was really? considered a suspect and being put on trial, um, Monahan went from stating that, you know, he was so upset that he tried to like get back in the house and had to be handcuffed and he was inconsolable to now he was saying that you know he had kind of a gut feeling that he had been the one to set the fire <laughs> the whole time of i thought it was him and diane barbie stated that his attempts to get back in the house didn't seem um didn't seem like realistic to her. yeah didn't yeah. seem authentic to her that he was just putting on a show for the firefighters Okay. Like looking over and just like, oh, oh, oh they're here now. Now in. I'm going to try and get back in. Oh, yeah. Rattling the window. Here we go. Look at me trying to get in the window. Here oh, man, I look have at all to this interject. Smoke, guys. I've got to interject something here. How can she be a credible witness? This lady, Diane Barbie, named her kid Buffy. So now her kid's name is Buffy Barbie. Right? Right? <laughs> I can't take her testimony seriously. Well, and the thing is, is that she actually yeah, left rude. the scene, too. <laughs> right? It was her daughter that uh, noticed that was around when he was, like, trying to break out the windows. Oh, um, so she wasn't even there to witness it. She wasn't even part. there to witness it. But now she says that, um, you know, he didn't try and get back in until after the firefighters arrived, you know, and he was just putting on a show. She also stated that it didn't seem like it was... Um, difficult to get back in the house at that point that the fire wasn't actually that bad when they got over there. Huh. Even though it clearly was. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know. So she was kind of like, oh, it wasn't so bad. He could have gotten back in if he wanted to. <laughs> you got crispy yeah. children. It was obviously fairly bad. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'd say so. So it's it's kind of interesting the way people's um, testimony and a recollection of events will change once it the idea has been kind of placed in their head that maybe he did do it yeah like oh now that i think about it mm -hmm. oh wait no now that now it seemed like that his behavior was over the top he was just putting on a show and this wasn't the act of someone who was you know crazy with grief and fear to, over, right, yeah, yeah, over his children their, burning up yeah. yeah that's part of that herd mentality that happens with almost all of these uh cases you know that been talking about is people changing their testimonies and changing based upon the facts that come out. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. Why don't they put these people who are changing their stories in jail? I mean, come I on. I know, right? <laughs> Although I feel like some of it is, you know, the, psycho the psychology behind that, it might not always be intentional. That's yeah. true, yeah. Like yeah. the mind just does like weird stuff. And True. like I said, you know, like your perception of what happens alters when something new is introduced, uh, some sort of new evidence or the just the fact that they had arrested him for. Like, oh, God, yeah. it was him then. Mm -hmm. So, OK, that puts a whole new perspective on his behavior. And suddenly it seems different than what it originally was, what was originally observed. 
He wasn't planting roses out there the other day. He was burying a body. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Exactly, yeah. Some The Burbs shit, right? <laughs> oh, man. I love that movie. <laughs> so good. Last time I sat down to watch that movie, I think I ended up on my phone the whole time. Well, well that's terrible. You need to put your phone <laughs> right? down and... Uh, <laughs> Fucking watch the burbs and appreciate it for the great masterpiece that it is. Yeah, it's on, I think, uh, Prime or something. Oh, I have it on. I have it on DVD. I have for years. Oh so. yeah, yeah. <laughs> have for years. The only person during the trial to testify on Willingham's behalf was their babysitter, who basically just got on the stand and said that she couldn't see Willingham killing his children. Like, there's no fucking way this guy did this. Yeah. Yeah. But that was the only person that the defense put on, and that was basically the only defense the defense put on. Like that—that that was the only witness the defense put on. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. In and, court, um, they just said, "There's no fucking way he did this. He he couldn't do this." Yeah, and then when he so got so, did they just not expect that they needed to? Did or did they just were they just incompetent? I think they just did a shitty job. Apparently, they had tried to find another arson expert to. You know, um, give him a second opinion. Yeah, give him a second opinion yeah. on what had happened, but they corroborated what Fogg and Vasquez said. Oh, <laughs> so clearly that was not helpful. They were uh, people who had studied under those two. <laughs> Maybe, <laughs> like I said, a lot of this stuff was like handed down. Exactly, exactly. And if yeah. it's in the same area, you know, who knows? Right. And they probably just like you know looked up the one, and then they're like, oh, okay. You get Holmes to investigate Sherlock's investigation. Mm-hmm. Something like I'm not that. saying these guys are so, either Sherlock are <laughs> or not get Watson to investigate Sherlock's investigation. Not that either of these guys are Sherlock or Watson, right? So, so yeah, basically they just had like no defense other than to put the babysitter up there and say that, in her opinion, the guy wouldn't do something like that. And so the only the only person they had was like a. 14-year-old teenager or something. Basically, yeah. And then when you come <laughs> up against, like, you know, Fogg and Vasquez and Vasquez all like, oh, yeah, here's the 20 indicators of arson. And great. And that he basically said that the fire wasn't set intentionally and that the intention of lighting the fire would be to kill the children inside. Bam. Done. Wow. Found guilty. Every jury out there. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, yeah, that all makes sense. That's logical. A, B, C, D. Here's the book. And it killed children, so it's tugging on their heartstrings already. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it didn't even take a full hour for the jury to deliberate wow. and find him guilty on all three counts of capital murder. Damn, they went away and they're like, it took them longer to get situated and their drinks refilled and all that. Now the sentencing part of the trial goes on. So where they only had the babysitter at the time, um, they did bring on a couple more people to testify. One of them was Stacy, his wife, and she pleaded with them to try and spare uh, Willingham's life. When she was on the stand, the prosecutor asked her about the significance of Willingham's very large tattoo of a skull encircled by some kind of serpent. Oh, shit. Yes. <laughs> you hear this? Oh, this, God. Uh, yeah, these are the terrible. trappings of the devil, if you Right, ask this me. is kind of when the uh, satanic panic really kind of comes into play, I, I guess yeah. you could say. And uh, Stacy was kind of like, it's just a tattoo. 
prosecuting attorney says he just likes skulls and snakes. Is that what you're saying? Oh. And then Stacy was like, no, he he just got the tattoo on him. Like there wasn't a huge amount of significance attached to it. He wanted a tattoo. He thought that looked cool. He got a tattoo. Right. But so the prosecution was trying to profile Willingham as a sociopath because right. really there would have been no other motive. There was no financial gain uh, to be had by killing the children. So they had to portray him as someone who basically just lacked a conscience. Right, because that's all they had as far as motive. We were just like, well, he just doesn't care, so. Yeah, the kids kind of got in the way, and he was just like, fuck it, I'll just burn him alive. Right. Rolling up to the club in the minivan was cramping his style. Yeah, well, who wants to be that guy, you know? Right. So the prosecution brought forth two experts to confirm this theory. Oh, Now, neither shit. one of them had ever met or examined Willingham. <laughs> what were these guys but... experts in? <laughs> well, one was Tim Tim Gregory. He was a psychologist with a master's degree in marriage and family issues. Oh, okay. Apparently, he was like a hunting buddy of the prosecuting attorney. <laughs> All right. So this guy, Gregory, is shown what was known as exhibit number 60, which was a photograph of an Iron Maiden poster that had hung in Willingham's house. Iron Maiden? The Iron band? Maiden. Yes. No. Holy shit, you guys. Yep. So the attorney asks Gregory to interpret what he is seeing here in this photograph. And his testimony was, this one is a picture of a skull with a fist being punched through the skull. He said that the image displayed violence and death. Hoo man. They then looked at other photographs of other music posters owned by Willingham. Oh my god. Yeah, there were others. There's there was more than just the one. What other bands were there? Do you do you have It doesn't say. Oh it man, I wonder say. if there's some Judas Priest maybe. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> there's probably some of the Filthy 15 on there. Probably I'd have Prince to poster. Imagine Black Sabbath was up there. C- Cindy Lauper. You know, if he's got an Iron Maiden poster, I'm going to go ahead and guess at that time, he did not have a Cindy Lauper poster next to it. Not a fan of Cindy Lauper. Didn't like that <laughs> she-bop? Probably not. <laughs> so he goes on to describe them stating, here's a hooded skull with wings and a hatchet, and all of these uh, are in fire depicting, it reminds me something like hell. And here's a picture, a Led Zeppelin picture. Sorry, there, what, there was a... Yeah, so Led Zeppelin. Led Zeppelin. Fucking Led Zeppelin. Led Zeppelin, you guys. Occult lyrics, Led Zeppelin. And it's it's the picture of the fallen angel. I think I have a t-shirt. Icarus. Yeah. It's called Icarus. Icarus, yeah. I've got that on a t-shirt. I wore yeah. it just like a few weeks ago when I was at the Vegas. I love that one. And so they said that the Icarus was... So he said that I see there's an association many times with cultive type activities, a focus on death and dying. Many times individuals that have a lot of this type of art have an interest in satanic type activities. Open oh, there it so, is, folks. Mm-hmm. Satanic type activities such as, you know, just sacrifice, Yeah, I guess. Just suddenly deciding to burn your children alive. Yeah. Things of that nature. Yeah, yeah. Now, the other expert was a really awesome guy named... James Grigson, and he is a forensic psychiatrist. 
apparently he often testified in capital punishment cases, so much so that he had a nickname, Dr. Death. Lovely. Mm-hmm. That's great. It's like, you know what? I mean... So you're saying he was not known for his bias. <laughs> right, and exactly. Con- and you get the name, like, Dr. Death, is like nobody starts to suspect you, maybe, that like there's something no fucking shit. wrong with you. No shit. Now, let's not like, confuse him. This guy him. is always saying the same shit. Let's not confuse him with Jack Kevorkian, Dr. Death. <laughs> right, right, right. Which is a completely different issue. <laughs> totally different issue. That would be with assisted suicide. And, yeah. you know, Kevorkian was, like, you know, much nicer about... Yeah, he was he the was people... He was a pleasant Dr. Death. Mm-hmm. He, the people that wanted to die... He, they wanted to die. Like He wasn't just killing people. He wasn't murdering people. He played a mean wood flute also. Oh, lovely. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Grigson suggested that uh, Willingham was quote-unquote, extreme, an extremely severe sociopath, and that no pill or treatment could help him. Yeah. He gave this diagnosis having never spoken to him. Yeah, he just from, <laughs> right. from posters mm-hmm. on the walls. So it should be noted that three years following Willingham's trial, this guy actually was expelled from the American Association, um, the American Psychiatric Association, Wow. Because of uh, multiple ethics violations, <laughs> yeah, which really, yeah, which would include that he constantly testified in capital cases, particularly, and gave out psychiatric diagnoses without having first examined the individuals in question, and then would also testify in court that he could predict one hundred percent that the individuals would engage in future violent acts. <laughs> And another bullshit artist. Yeah. Lovely. And it's like, you know, why does... I just don't understand when something like that happens. Why is every single case that this guy testified in not re-examined? Exactly. It should be. Because, you know, you talk about influencing a jury. Like, you know, Dr. So-and-so comes on and he's like, oh, yeah, this guy's psychotic. He'll never be cured. Everyone's like, okay, you let him out. He'll just keep on killing. I can, I can 100% guarantee you that. Yeah. (laughs) That's, uh, never met the guy, but I'm telling you right now, I can guarantee it. He's a, he's a bad one. See the tires on these babies? Yeah, they're brand new. So needless to say, Willingham was sentenced to death and was taken into custody and put on uh, Texas's death row. Great. Mm -hmm. In March of 2000, remember old Johnny Webb who uh, said that Willingham had confessed to him in jail? Oh, yeah. The spider. Yes, (laughs) the the spider. spider. (laughs) He sent the district attorney, Jackson, a motion to recant his testimony and said that Mr. Willingham is innocent of all charges. So he basically said that he had lied when he said that Willingham had confessed to him. Oh. But then he recanted his recantion. Or... So he re-recanted? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he recanted his recantation. Wow. So he, he was like, I, I lied, and then he sent another, like, just, I lied about lying. Right. But uh, Willingham's lawyers were never notified of the original recantation. Right. The first one. The first one. Of course. Huh. That's interesting. So still, his credibility is like fucking top notch. (laughs) 
right? As is everyone associated. Right. Yeah. Like yeah. I said, I mean, the guy should have never been believed in the first place, but then he, you know, recants and said that he was lying and then recants again. So basically, it's like, come on. Come on. But. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Whatever. Eventually, Willingham gets a new lawyer appointed to him who submitted uh, several appeals on his behalf, all of which were denied. Right, of course. Most of them denied without even a hearing. They were just straight up denied. No, nope, nope, Well, yeah. Nope. I mean, this guy's a satanic child killer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, why would you want to let him do anything? Yeah, he's a demon. Yep. Well, if he was a demon, he could have got off because you can't prosecute supernatural beings. Well, I think uh, he was referred to as a demon. But, oh, you was know, he? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, somebody along the way. I think it was the district attorney that at some point quoted Defense that he was a demon. He was a demon. But not, you know, an actual demon. But, right. You know, a human demon, maybe. All of his appeals were denied, and he was given an execution date of February 17th, 2004. So in January 2004, one month prior to his execution, this guy, Dr. Gerald Hurst, receives his case file. And this had been kind of done, I think, through somebody else who was on death row at the same time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this guy Willis was actually on death row at the same time as Willingham. And Willis was also accused of setting a fire that killed people. Witnesses also said his behavior was weird and blah, blah, blah. And, you know. Very similar story. It was story. very, very right. similar case. But this guy actually had like a really good lawyer who was working like pro bono. Ah. And so they had gotten this guy Hurst to come and look at the case file. And shortly before the guy was supposed to be executed, he was actually freed because um, Hurst investigation determined that the fire had been 100% accidental. And, oh, well, damn. Yeah. <laughs> now, there, it, the guy was out of a different county, and it was a different prosecutor. Yeah. He basically got lucky, and he was freed. But the same guy, Hurst, got a hold of Willingham's case file and looked over it. Now, this guy, Hurst, is, like, crazy badass. He was, like, a total, like, child prodigy. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Like, I think he, he grew up in, like, the Depression. He was, like, the child of, like, sharecroppers in the Depression. <laughs> grew up, like, dirt poor. Goddamn. And he would, like, scavenge junkyards, and he would build his own radios, and he was just, like, crazy smart. Wow. Crazy smart about chemicals. Nice. One of those guys who had, like, blown up a laboratory at some point, I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. As most, you know. Blew up the outhouse <laughs> that he was working in on accident or something. Yeah. Pretty classic. He was working for, like, the Department of Defense, I think, or All right. something along those lines. He designed uh, rockets, firebombs, all sorts of stuff. So this guy's an actual rocket scientist. Yeah, actual rocket scientist. He worked on, you know, making napalm bombs in Vietnam, stuff like that. I don't think he was in Vietnam, but that were no, used in the Vietnam. No, they don't send people like that yeah. to Vietnam. <laughs> so unlike the arson investigators this guy actually knows what fire does right (laughs) right familiar with that whole deal (laughs) this guy could like you know figure out how to make bombs from stuff like uh sugar and chicken manure very macgyver of him yeah i know so macgyver and not only that but it tastes great 
He Check had also <laughs> he had also um, invented an exploding T-shirt <laughs> by nitrating the fibers. Damn. Yeah. He should have been working for the CIA. Yeah, maybe he was and just couldn't say. That's possible, yeah. <laughs> Good call. Yeah. But at some point, he was kind of done working on things that basically, like, destroyed others. Yeah, yeah. I can see how that would get old. Yeah. Like, okay, I'm sick of making murder devices. Mm-hmm. Although, I have to say, God, I wish I knew what that guy knew. Yeah, <laughs> I should. I have always... Like, Derek and I had this argument... The other night when we were talking about like, oh, I don't know, just uh, political uprisings and just just shit for like, you know, like end of days shit. And I thought that it would be really useful to know how to make bombs. And Jarek was kind of arguing with me saying like, as long as you have guns and bullets and know how to shoot, you don't need to make bombs. But I don't know. I kept arguing that bomb making happens to be something that I think would be really cool to know. Uh, yeah, it would be handy mm -hmm. and better to have all the knowledge right <laughs> right yeah i just i totally wish i knew how to make bombs just saying that <laughs> well don't try too many google searches on that because you may uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> that's end up with definitely the fbi not what you want your door. in your history <laughs> i'm sure like throughout the course of researching a lot of these things i have already been flagged and like <laughs> <laughs> that's that's possible yeah I am sure there there are many flags popping up around but me mainly now just on as my a Google whack searches. Job. Yeah. Right. My response is, well, you deserve what you got looking at my history. <laughs> but it's like, where do you learn this? How do you learn how to make bombs? I just, I, I want to know. I guess you learn chemistry because then you know what chemicals do what, and then you know what chemicals go into things, and then you can just sort of make bombs. But my guess is. Yeah, but I mean, that seems just so like, you know, I don't want to have to learn all chemistry. Maybe like know. the important <laughs> chemistry. <laughs> Only the chemistry that makes bombs. Why can't I just take the easy way out? Well, you could find that, that old book, The Anarchist Cookbook. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. That's a place to start. Mm-hmm. But then I'd have to Google search it. It's true. <laughs> They'll see my purchase on Amazon. They will. <laughs> I think this guy's kind of a badass. So he stops working on building bombs and such and decides to loan his expertise on arson investigation, which is how he comes to exonerate this other guy, Willis. He reads over Willingham's report and finds a myriad of mistakes. The first thing that jumps out at him is um, Manuel Vasquez's testimony that out of 1,200 fires that he had investigated... Most of them were arson. Yeah. Like, the law of averages just doesn't work that way. Exactly, so most exactly. most of the fires that are happening are being lit by people, according to him. Exactly. It's an epidemic. He seems to find arson in almost every single fire he investigates. Huh. huh. Whereas the Texas State Fire Marshal's office typically found arson, like, statistically, I guess, in only 50% of his cases. Almost like he's looking yeah. for arson. Exactly. I mean, I guess that's what an arson investigator does. <laughs> <laughs> One could say that, but however, but maybe I feel not like... so much. Maybe you should be looking more to rule out arson than to look for it. I don't know. That seems like a more logical. He way doesn't to go seem about to be things. the most objective of people. It's like we're gonna so, go ahead and just. Yeah, I'm. I'm questioning arson investigation as a career choice now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, anyone can do it. So. 
That's that's why I was thinking about it. Number one, those brown stains, the the ones that were evidence of liquid accelerant, that's actually commonly found in fires, and it's usually because of like rust from charred debris that mixed with the water and the fire hoses. Oh right, and yeah. it makes uh, puddles on the floor when yeah. you're doing you know the hosing of the fire. Yeah, 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 and that's what causes those. Makes sense. It's not actually evidence of an accelerant, an accelerant. puddling there. Yeah, yeah. Number two, the crazed glass. That actually happens when glass is heated very hot, and then probably when the water hit it. Cools very rapidly. Cools very rapidly, and that's what causes the uh, spider-like breakage pattern in the glass. All right. Now, I myself have had that happen, like where I took a glass out of the dishwasher and it's still yep. kind of like really hot and then i put like ice cold milk in it and it just shatters yeah totally i have yeah. done that also yeah with the measuring glass wow yep <laughs> yep pyrex isn't supposed to do that <laughs> i don't think that one was actually pyrex and that's oh, okay. why i did it i see <laughs> i've never had a problem with pyrex yeah you shouldn't but yeah it totally seems to make sense right yeah 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 when you apply logic to this stuff and not just like fancy, <laughs> fancy quick talking. Mm-hmm. Like know. here, this is this is evidence that the fire burned fast and hot. Definitely caused by an accelerant. That was another thing that Hearst also disputed that um, fires burn at the same temperature, whether they are like wood fueled or or if, if an accelerant is used. It can only get so hot. And he also could not seem to find the same V patterns of and points of origin that the investigators had allegedly found. The evidence taken, he was like, there's nothing, there's no... Right. There's no V patterns, I don't see these V patterns. Right, and then he had a plausible explanation for basically every single indicator of arson that they put down on paper. He countered back saying, like, no, that just happens with fire it doesn't mean that it was arson like it's great you caught this that's how fires do it not indicating that it's arson that's just what fires do mm-hmm. basically <laughs> good good basically yeah so in his report her says that you know without it, being able to examine the scene of the fire himself he wasn't able to definitively say why the fire started but he was able to point by point disprove that it was arson. Right. Which is what the arson investigators should be doing anyway. It's yeah. going through and being like like yes, this happens in arson, but it's just because there was there's fires involved in arson. Well, an investigation is supposed to be eliminating all things until you get to the one that is the cause. Not just stopping when you find one you like. Yeah. <laughs> And then finding idiots to come in and back you up who are just bullshit artists. He said the most likely reasons for the fire would have been the space heater in the children's bedroom or faulty wiring in the house. Space heaters are known for shorting out and causing fires. Now, his wife Stacy had said that she had caught Amber putting stuff too close to it in the past. Yeah. So she had kind of always wondered if maybe she hadn't kind of stuck, you know, a blanket or a toy or something like 
to where it was touching the hot coils. Or just close enough that it, you know, caught. Yeah. It's 1991, so a lot of these toys may be flammable under conditions that were not necessarily tested for then. Yeah. And kids aren't exactly known for putting their stuff where it belongs. Especially when they're, like, fucking two years old. Yeah, yep. she'd be like, oh, my doll is cold. I gotta put it next to this thing. Right, you know, here, whatever. let me warm you up, dolly. Hearst writes up this report and sends it over to the Board of Pardons. Okay, yeah. In hopes that they will look at it and decide that Willingham actually is not guilty. He's, yeah, totally. And and exonerate him um, like he was able to do for Willis before him. And apparently uh, nine other people at, wow. at that time. He had, wow, <laughs> I wonder if all of those people... Damn. We're all like the the arson investigators were the same guys. I don't know. It'd be interesting. It would be interesting. Just started looking at their case files going, yep, this is bullshit. This is bullshit. However, on February 13th, four days before his execution date, his attorney notified him that the Board of Pardons, um, and sorry, it was the Board of Pardons and Paroles, had voted unanimously that his petition for clemency to be denied wow yeah the fuck's up with that no one really knows apparently the board gets to deliberate in secret oh that's awesome so there isn't any kind of like transcription of what was discussed half the time they don't even meet up in person just phone calls it's facts or it was at the time yeah (laughs) It was called Death by Facts, actually, because they'll cast their votes by facts. And... Great. Yeah. That's that's lovely. Really, really just take just the solid. human element out of it. Solid technology right there, too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the only um, records as far as what happened during that deliberation is that they received the report, but... There's nothing that says anything about acknowledging the report or reading the report. But they saw it. But they did get it. Well, that's 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 good. So remember the lawyer from the O.J. Simpson case, Barry Sheck? Yeah. Yeah. Went on to become the founder of the Innocence Project. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so he's he, he's been working on this case, like trying to get it, it, it all the information out there that state of Texas executed an innocent man. And his thought on the whole um, denial of clemency was that the only reasonable conclusion is that the governor's office and the board of pardons and paroles ignored scientific evidence. That's what he had to say about it. Yeah. Hearst said that the board's actions were unconscionable. Or they just, yeah, I mean, that's crazy. Maybe they just didn't even look at it and just whatever. Just, and that seems yeah. pretty fucked up if somebody, yeah. if some expert submits evidence to you. You would hope as a citizen. Saying, no, look at this. Look at this report. I mean, the, the that system. That basically exonerates this person that you are about to execute. I mean, I mean, isn't that worth a read? Yeah. yeah you know, yeah. at least a light perusal. So the execution date held fast. And Willingham began to make his final preparations. Now... He asked Stacy if his tombstone could be erected next to their daughters, but she denied that request because she had just started to 
go over some of the court transcripts and the initial arson investigation. So she now thought he was guilty. Oh, but she hadn't even and, got to the new information. Right. Yet. So she wasn't aware of the new information that basically said the original arson investigation was junk. Right. Yeah. So she denied his request. Oh, man. Like his family came to visit him one last day. time. And his parents were, were crying, and he told his mother, he said, don't be sad, Mama, in 55 minutes, I'm a free man. I'm going home to see my kids. Governor Rick Perry refused to grant him a stay. The warden came in, did the classic, you know, it's time. And uh, he went into the execution chamber. He had requested that his family and friends not witness the execution, but yeah. when the curtains opened, Stacy was there watching. Uh, and that's just, oh Great. Yeah, that's just so upsetting to me. She probably at that point was like, "No, I ha- I got I thinking he was guilty." Was like, "No, I want to see him." But who knows? Maybe she didn't. Maybe I don't know. It's all speculation. So he was given the IVs and the three separate drugs that cause you to die. Yeah. And he was pronounced dead at six twenty p.m. Now his last words prior to this was. The only statement I want to make is that I am an innocent man convicted of a crime I did not commit. I have been persecuted for 12 years for something I did not do. From God's dust I came, and to dust I will return. So the earth shall become my throne. Now, two years following his death, Barry Sheck with the Innocence Project, yep. they commissioned a couple other top fire investigators to also do their own independent review. And every single one of them concluded that each and every of the 20 indicators that Vasquez had said proved that the fire was arson yeah. were scientifically proven to be invalid. So they, again, they, they went back and said again. Yeah, so it wasn't just Hearst who said this. This is other, all bullshit. Yeah, there was uh, like four more. other investigators who went back and said, like, yeah, this is total bullshit. Here's more evidence that the original findings are bullshit. In the years following the Innocence Project's uh, reports from these outside investigators that this was basically all junk science, there's been, you know, kind of like like half-assed attempts to recognize the errors done here. And I wouldn't say it was half-assed on the part of the Innocence Project, but basically, you know, the state's like, okay, well, we're going to call for a commission to investigate this. And one of the notable findings that came from that investigation was one of the fire experts saying that the guys who had testified at Willingham's trial, Fogg and Vasquez, should have known that their testimony was wrong at the time, that it was they were using standards that were outdated even for the time. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Great. So what you're they're basically just like fucking nail this guy to the cross. Who cares? Right. It was noted that Vasquez's approach seemed to deny, quote-unquote, rational reasoning (laughs) and was more characteristic of mystics and psychics. Good religion. Mm -hmm. So in a nutshell, there's been a couple of, like, reviews and some of this stuff was set to go before some sort of panel that was put together, but Governor Rick Perry kind of, like, dismantled the panel at the last minute Uh. and... It's basically been going on and on for years and just seems to be like every single time they agree to 
actually look over and review this and issue some sort of like an official exoneration of Willingham, then something, you know, comes up last minute and for whatever reason, it's delayed again. Of course. Barry Sheck had initiated this in 2006. It is now 2019. So 13 years. 13 years. And still, the state of Texas has not officially taken responsibility for killing an innocent man. Damn. There's been lots of public reports that the science used to convict him was total crap, but nothing as far as the state of Texas saying, like, yes, we made a mistake then, and an innocent man was executed. They're saying, wasn't me. Yeah. Well, I mean, that that just looks bad, I guess. <laughs> yes, it does. Kind of kind of puts a... <laughs> it, it certainly looks bad. <laughs> All right. Well, for those that are trying to uphold the death penalty, it definitely is not something that you want made public that mm. an innocent man was executed. Not so much, no. Which is why I think they have yet to admit responsibility for executing an innocent man. Yeah, because they want to keep capital punishment, and there's probably a push to end that. Yeah, and this is this is exactly California. why I actually don't believe in capital punishment, because life in prison, at least, you know, this guy probably would have had an opportunity had he had more time, like had Hearst yeah, he had more time. Yeah, yeah I mean, California this was all stuff that eventually abolished. was agreed upon to be totally wrong, that that the findings of arson were completely incorrect. And it's also kind of weird to give, like, your country the power over your life. Yeah. Like, do I feel like they have enough authority over me to kill me? Right. Not really. <laughs> well, and you would think there would be checks and balances, but clearly those fucking fail. Spectacularly. Like the... Uh... <laughs> The Board of uh, Pardons and Paroles, and just like, oh, new evidence? Well, nah. fuck that. We don't, we don't need new evidence. We have all the evidence we need. Mm-hmm. This guy had Iron Maiden posters in his house, clearly. <laughs> right. Clearly that. he's satanic. Clearly fuck he's that. satanic. Very sad story. Yes, definitely. And still not official that he is innocent. Still up in the air, still being fought. Mm-hmm. So I would hope at some point that they're forced to admit their False. wrongdoing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, As of right now, that still hasn't happened. The 80s were such a great time. That's when the Satanism scare was diving into the music scene also, and along with the PMRC, you know, and besides all the risque lyric ones and stuff, like Cindy Lauper's She-Bop, they were attacking an Iron Maiden because they did the song The Number of the Beast. Yes, which is... For all the children, it's 666, in case you don't know <laughs> what they were talking about. Which was also part of the West Memphis 3's case number. I saw that, and I was like, no way. <laughs> was it? Was apparently, it part- apparently, the West Memphis 3's case number was 93-05-0666. Wow. I wonder if they did that on purpose. That, that was my thought. That's why I wrote it down. I was curious what you guys' thought was on that. Oh, I was like, I, you know, that case is so fucked up. Is that random or is that? Yeah. I no. feel like that's just some like subtle. That's a little subtle way of uh, influencing the jury right there. Yeah, totally. Because <laughs> they have to read it out every day, you know, case number, blah, 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 blah. Six, six, six. It's Everyone's like, oh, my like, God. <gasps> yeah. This must be the work of the devil. 
Let's talk about the West Memphis Three. Let's talk about them. I remember, you know, the case happening, and of course, there's all the charity benefits and stuff like that, and uh, you know, it was a lot of musicians and celebrities got into it, and so obviously well aware of it, but I never really dove into the details too much. I knew it was a fucked up case, but so I I dove into it right along with you there and started reading more and more about it, and that's what I'm saying. There's like a continuing theme amongst all of these different cases, the daycare cases from the last episode. The, uh, you know, the cases with the the chick who, you know, was possessed by Satan uh, and they wrote the book and he became the satanic expert. The West Memphis Three, the one you were just talking about. There's all kinds of just inept bullshit going on. You know, when he can't find a motive, just... Attributed to just make it up. Yeah, just attributed it to Satan worship. Music, D and D, whatever. Both. Right. They were listening to music and playing D and D. And Satan's the great adversary. He's leading our children down the path. But then the willingness of all these other people to just believe this bullshit, and even when facts are placed before them, you know. Oh my God! It's just like, like seriously. <laughs> Seriously. They don't give a shit about the facts. Well, I tell you, especially with the West Memphis Three, uh, Judge Burnett, I believe his name is, he presided over the original trials and a lot of the appeals came his way, which, of course, he denied. And it's just unbelievable to me. I think if you become a judge, you have to be like a lawyer first and then elected a judge. I'm not 100% sure on that, but I'm pretty sure you have to have a law degree to be a sitting judge. I'm pretty sure you do have to have a law degree, but Mm -hmm. the only thing I know about becoming a judge is from a marshal in How I Met Your Mother. Oh. And he, they asked him to become a judge, so I don't think you have to be elected unless you become, like, a head judge of something like I a think. supreme court something like that yeah type of judge yeah okay. well it was like states obviously not the the supreme court since that's well you appointed. definitely have to be elected well yeah you have but to be appointed, appointed and then yeah yeah but, but you do have to be like you gotta have a law degree for that shit mm-hmm. all my knowledge of the court system comes from judge judy i swear <laughs> judge judy she's tough but fair <laughs> is that like her tagline or whatever uh, no, I heard that in a show somewhere. Oh, okay. <laughs> all right, all right. Tough but fair, unlike this fucking judge. So, yeah, you got to have a law degree, and it's like, where the fuck did you get your goddamn law degree? Because I'm seeing this confession, and it's like, you know, how do you not see that this is coerced? How do you let this guy testify as an expert? There's just so many things, so many things where it's like, I just, I just don't fucking get it. Like, I can read through it and be like, uh, yeah, this is bullshit, but you went through fucking law school and somehow... none of this, uh, you know, registers to you that this somehow might not be, like, correct and, you know, but it's like, oh, yeah, just keep on, keep on trying that case. It's uh, that blind faith thing. I guess so. Because you throw in the Satanism aspect and instantly you trigger their religious uh, DNA, you know, and they... They, they turn off all their rational thought process. And nope, this is the way it is. I and guess these, so. all these bullshit facts support my thought process. So this has got to be true. 
No, I tell you, it's just it's just awful. It's just awful. That's all I can say. On May fifth, nineteen ninety three, three eight year old boys, Stevie Branch, Christopher Byers, and Michael Moore went out for a bike ride in their town of West Memphis, Arkansas. They never returned. After a frantic search, their bodies were found in a drainage ditch in a wooded area known as Robin Hood Hills. They had been beaten and hogtied with their own shoelaces, and it appeared that Christopher Byers had suffered genital mutilation. Wow. The shoelaces is an important plot point. Yes, it does become very important. From the beginning, the investigators seemed to hone in on three teenagers in the community. Damien Eccles, age 18, Jason Baldwin, age 16, and Jesse Miss Kelly Jr., age 17. So the ones that really put the focus on Damien Eccles are two juvenile officers who had encounters with him previously and were total gullible fuckshits when it came to uh, the whole satanic panic. Right. Satanic panic... Yeah. You know, was like firmly had its grasp. They were blaming it all. They're like, oh man, oh yeah, dude, seriously, (laughs) like Satan's there to get you. Satan is everywhere. Satan is. This is deep Bible belt. Oh yeah. Oh my god. Did you watch? Did any of you watch Paradise Lost or any? Oh my god. You ought to watch it just because it's like Jesus Christ, Arkansas. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've been like, throughout, oh my god! You go through some of those small towns, just anywhere, really, and it's 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 different. It's it is very so different. different. It is so different, and it's just like, especially at this time now. Nowadays, it's probably less so because even though you're in a small town, you still have a lot of interactions with the outside world via the internet, right? Yeah. Like, right. so the younger generation, at least, are going to be less. I mean, they're still going to be a little bit weird because they've only seen four people in their life, but... They're going to get corrupted by that coastal culture. Yes. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah, now back in 1993, obviously... Not a lot. A little bit more isolated when it comes to... Significantly more isolated. (laughs) When it comes to, like, how, like, other parts of the country, you know, uh, think and operate on a slightly more rational level than maybe... Some of these small towns in the Bible Belt. The two officers, which um, I'm speaking of, that would be Jerry Driver and Steve Jones. Prior to this murder, they were already convinced that a satanic cult was active in the town of West Memphis. And they had called in a expert on Satanism and occultism, one Dale Griffiths, to advise them on how to spot satanic activity and how to battle it Mm, yes and how to keep it out of their town that's very important right and this guy's got about as much you know authenticity as that dipshit from the daycare (laughs) yeah yeah now driver and jones were so convinced that damien eccles and his friends were performing satanic rituals that they would drive along the county roads and you know, explore all sorts of uh, places in the woods every time there was like a full moon to try and catch them in the act. Wow. Yeah. Just rolling around looking for people doing devil worship. Mm-hmm. Uh, to quote one of them, it said, we went everywhere in the world that summer, which would be the summer of 1992. Yeah. Prior to the 1993 murders. Every time there was a witch's Sabbath, we were out in force. And that was Jerry Driver. 
Wow. Now, Steve Jones was there on the scene when the boys' bodies were found, and he allegedly said, looks like Damien has finally killed someone. So, so they they were pretty much right off the bat, like, oh, this is fucking Damien Eccles. Yep. Yeah, literally the second the boys' bodies were found, it was Damien Eccles was on their radar. Put that in, that preconceived notion out there right off the bat. Mm-hmm. So much so that Jones and another officer actually interviewed him, like, the next day was the first time they interviewed Damien Eccles. But there was no physical evidence that was found that tied Eccles to the scene of the crime. So they didn't find his ASB card? No. Or, or like, his glove? Mm-mm. Or, like, his favorite whatever the fuck right Walkman. no those three nothing. just happened to be the town hoodlums they were the town miscreants troubled teenagers spray painting things and stealing from the stores probably yeah stuff like that i mean yeah. uh yeah they eccles in particular have been you know in a few scrapes with the yeah. law but nothing fisticuffs with yeah. the local utes and you know he had black hair and um, maybe wore a little eyeliner. He listened to Metallica. Oh, man, probably had like a trench coat. Uh, yes. They you know, I don't know if he had a trench coat, but they um... did mention his love of black clothing. Also, mm-hmm. oh my god! So he's your average goth metalhead or whatever, right? Right. Who is probably just a little bit before his time in a community like West Memphis. I mean, probably if this kid was like in New York, nobody would be. <laughs> wouldn't have mattered. Right. It wouldn't have mattered. But they were already convinced that this kid was like a Satanist to begin with. And then these boys are murdered and it was like, oh, well, must have been him. Must have been him out there doing his Satanic cult shit. Of course. Of course. These two juvenile officers basically tell law enforcement they think that it was Damien Eccles and that he had to be involved in it. And they also uh, told every, you know, major member of the community their thoughts on it as well. Pretty much anyone who would listen, they're like, oh, yeah, we think it's the Eccles kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So on June 3rd, 1993, the police arrest Damien, Jason, and Jesse. And they charge each one with three counts of capital murder. At a press conference the next day, Chief Inspector Gary Gitchell was asked how confident he was about the case on a 1 to 10 scale. And Gitchell's answer was 11. Whoa. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Some spinal taps. Yeah, very, mm-hmm. very spinal tappy of him. So let's get into the evidence. Oh, yeah. This Air quotes around called. the evidence here. Or for uh, our UK listeners, that's inverted commas. <laughs> inverted commas? Yeah. Is that actually what they're called? Yeah. Weird. The case is purely circumstantial. As I said, there was no physical evidence found that linked uh, any of the three kids, any of the three teenagers to the scene of the crime. And weren't they, they, and they weren't even all three friends, were they? I mean, yeah, they were friends. The, it wasn't well, the... okay, so Jason Baldwin was best friends with Damien Eccle. Yeah. And Jesse Miss Kelly was more of an acquaintance to Damien. Like they knew him, but they weren't like hanging out every yeah, day. Yeah, he wasn't actually kind of like in their circle. Like both of them knew him. I mean, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you how it, it kind of. We'll hear How all about he connects it. With we're, them. we're getting ahead. We'll we'll calm down and let you paint us. <laughs> yeah, slow paint us a there, picture. I'm gonna paint you a picture of the key factors of the evidence that was used to Quote, uh, air quotes inverted yeah, commas arrest and subsequently convict these three teenagers of murder. So number one would be the testimony of Vicky and Aaron Hutchinson. 
Vicki Hutchinson was a neighbor of Jesse Miss Kelly. She told police that she and Damien Eccles and Jesse went to an SBAT. Oh. Which is a witch's gathering. Oh. She stated that it was held in a field north of Marion, Arkansas, and that she saw about 10 young people with arms and faces painted black, taking off their clothes and touching each other. At that point, she asked Damien to take her home, and they left Jesse there at the SBAT. Now, right off the bat, police should have known that this was kind of bullshit because... Damien didn't have a car and wasn't known to drive. <laughs> yeah. So, right. so you would like, think they've got that information on record somewhere. Like, yeah. Well, he for, doesn't have this is a small license. town, you know. There's yeah. To, in 2010, there was something like 26,000 people in the town, and that's in 2010. So this is 20 years before that. So there's probably significantly less. Yeah, and for a police department that was so honed in on Damien Eccles and what the fuck he was doing at all times. Right. Yeah. <laughs> maybe the fact that he didn't own a car and was never known to have driven a car. Would not hey, have been something big. Yeah. That, that could have been like a red flag there when this chick is saying that he took her to an SBAT. So that's kind of how Jesse Miskelly gets on their radar. Now her son, who was eight at the time, her son Aaron... He was a classmate of the three murdered boys. The police talked to him as well, and he told the police that he and the three murdered children often visited Robin Hill Woods and that they had seen five men in the woods sitting in a circle singing songs to the devil and doing what men and ladies do. Oh, is that insinuating... uh... Sexual intercourse. I think that that was the insinuation there. That's the insinuation. This testimony is basically what prompts the police to decide to question Jesse Miskelly. Huh. And it's what leads to the probably the most damning evidence against the three, which is number two, the coerced confession of Jesse Miskelly Jr. Great. The police questioned jesse for about 12 hours my god yes right wasn't he like a high school dropout or something anyway the thing is is that he was borderline retarded yeah with an iq of probably around like 67 to 72 wow so so he's kind of slow to begin with yeah his scared shitless yeah his defense attorney would later state that after having him evaluated that he probably operates at the level of a five-year-old child so you basically take somebody who operates at the level of a kindergartner and you question them for 12 hours about what happened out there in the woods you feed them all sorts of suggestive phrases and oh, such. just the same yeah. thing they did I to mean, the kids and the the daycare kids. I mean, this exactly. kid, uh, he was diagnosed of being borderline intellectual functioning. Yeah, this is exactly what they did. Same thing they did with those kids. Mm-hmm. Because he is basically their age. Yeah. Intellectually speaking, and so they the same thing. I mean, you know, same shit. Like instead of saying something like "What were you doing? You were doing this, weren't you?" Right. Mm-hmm. And then acting like whenever he says anything that you just don't believe it and making him answer the same question several times and, you know, just getting him to confess without telling him blatantly to do it. 
Now, they dangled all sorts of stuff like a $35,000 cash reward for information leading to the convictions in the case. So first they kind of tried to say, like, you know, if you know what happened and you can tell us what happened, we'll give you all this money. He still denied any involvement and denied participating in satanic rituals or the murders. But they just kept on going and going and going. And after hours and hours of questioning, he just begins to tell the officers what they want to hear. Because he's getting sick of it by this time. He's tired. He's scared. And... Yeah, he's a little kid that needs to take a nap now. Mm -hmm. They're making all sorts of promises too of, you know, if he just says what they want him what they want him to say that he'll get a reward, he'll get to go home, whatever. And he is 17 at this point, isn't he? He's 17, 17. so he's a minor, but yeah, I mean, it's just unconscionable. So he begins to weave a story about how he and Damian Eccles and Jason Baldwin killed these kids in the woods. His story is full of inconsistencies, such as he originally states that the murders took place during the daytime when they actually took place at night. And he also stated that the kids were bound with rope when actually the evidence clearly showed that they had been tied with their own shoelaces. Right. Pop point. Yeah. But apparently this didn't bother the investigators because they were so determined to pin this murder on Damien Eccles that they just kind of kept feeding the information until he said it right. Huh. The tape of this kid's confession is just ridiculous. Again, it's like, how does a sitting judge listen to this and not see that it's coerced? Did you actually watch the, the tape? Oh yeah, I watched I watched the documentaries. Oh nice. The Paradise Lost stuff. And in it in they play lots of gotcha. excerpts of the tape and it's just like, oh my god. Fucking ridiculous. So ridiculous. It's like how do you not see that these questions are extremely leading and he's not coming up with this information on his own and he had a a pretty good lawyer who tried to tell, you know, point this out to the jury that this was a false confession, but just not a lot was really known about it at the time. And I guess yeah. people just didn't really buy that somebody would falsely confess to something they hadn't done. Exactly. Yeah. It wasn't as well known of a phenomenon as it is today. Yeah. Cause Jesse Miss Kelly at first was stating that, you know, it was just Baldwin and Eccles doing the murdering, but then he implicates himself eventually by saying that he had chased down one of the kids trying to escape and brought him back. Now he gets himself in trouble. Yeah. And charged with murder. Again, just completely reprehensible on the police and everyone, you know, prosecuting attorney's office, the judge. It's just like. Where is a person saying, like, hold up? Like, this <laughs> kid's second. not all there. We need to, like. Well, that was his defense attorney, but nobody fucking listened to him. Or how come, you know, when they were questioning him, they were like, this kid doesn't know any of the actual details. Maybe we got the wrong kid. <laughs> right. But again, yeah, his defense attorney pointed all of that out, like. That nothing that he was coming up with was spontaneous and anything that maybe did seem spontaneous was completely fucking wrong. And the police just kept redirecting him until he said it right. Yeah, or, no, no, no. That, we don't want we don't to talk about that. Let's, let's go back here. We were talking about <laughs> that didn't happen. Right. Don't try and lead us away. No, mm -hmm. don't you remember? This is how it happened. Yeah. Man. Yeah. So the trials were separated 
because the judge allowed for the confession to be admitted into court. But Jesse Miss Kelly refused to testify against Baldwin and Eccles because the next day he recanted his confession. But by then it was too late and they decided he was to be charged along with the other two. The defendant has a right to face their accusers. And basically the accusation is Jesse Miskelly's taped confession. Since that was going to be admissible against him, they had to try him separately than Eccles and Baldwin. I see. So number three, Jody Medford's testimony. She testified in the trial against Eccles and Baldwin. She was 15. I think she went to the same school, maybe. And she had described seeing Eccles at a softball game following the murders. And this was her testimony during trial. I heard Damien Eccles say that he killed the three little boys and before he turned himself in that he was going to kill two more and he already had one of them picked out. So she she says she heard that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, another credible witness, huh? Right. Then, of course, number four, the testimony of Dale Griffiths expert in satanism and occultism <laughs> the oh, the good. same one who advised uh the the juvenile officers on how to combat satanism in their town that's that's great yeah he gets put on the stand uh eccles attorney tries to discredit the idea that he's an actual expert on this but the judge again allowed that his testimony should be admissible so the judge decided that he was credible as an expert, but, you know. He's fine. Mm-hmm. He's I'm like, sure no, he this guy knows what he's about. talking about. Yep. So his testimony was that the murder of the boys had the trappings of occultism. Oh, does it? Mm-hmm. That's an important phrase right there, the trappings of occultism. Trappings of occultism. <laughs> I think that's just him doing fancy talk to... <laughs> reassert the idea that he is indeed an expert oh yeah and apparently there was some stuff found in damien eccles home some drawings and things of that nature which he deemed to be um occult and satanic drawings and writings really was it that was like the metallica opinion? was it the metallica like words yeah i don't know or like do you think he was like you know drawing pictures of of led zeppelin maybe of icarus maybe maybe like on his binder he had the iron maiden <laughs> Like he drew, he wrote Iron Maiden on there. Right, or maybe a pentagram even. Oh, Jesus fucking probably, yeah. yeah. Slayer album cover. Oh, yeah. yeah. Maybe he like he listened to Merciful Fate. Probably. Yeah. I do want to point out that to this day, I, I checked, Dale Griffiths has his own website if you want to check it out. <laughs> um, is he still an expert on Satanism? Yeah, he's still an expert. So his website is endritualabuse.org. And there you can find all of his vast knowledge on the occult and lots of different cases where obviously Satanism was a key factor. And to this day, he stands by his testimony. Gotta give him credit for sticking behind what he says, though. I guess so, but maybe Jesus Christ, what kind of credit? You get the stupidity it. credit or what? Like, <laughs> I don't know. Well, maybe he actually believes himself. Well, that's, that's weird. pretty scary. Right? <laughs> It's pretty Hum- terrifying. Humans are terrifying fucking Oh my up god. Creatures. Clearly. So on February 5th, 1994, Miss Kelly is found guilty on one count of first degree murder and two counts of second degree murder. He is sentenced to 40 years in prison. 
and is uh, sent to a facility in Pine Bluff. Now, in their separate trial on March 18, 1994, Damien Eccles and Jason Baldwin are found guilty of capital murder, three counts. Baldwin is sentenced to life in prison, and Damien is sentenced to death by lethal injection. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, so he goes and starts serving his time on Arkansas's death row. There was one other piece of evidence that caught my eye that was funny. A little piece of physical evidence that they convicted him on was a microfiber of uh, cloth material that could possibly match one of the shirts that was in Eccles' bedroom that they found that was black with, like, satanic imagery on it. Oh, so it looked like one of the, his, like, yeah. heavy metal t-shirts. And it, mm-hmm. but it was a it was like a a, a microscopic fiber fiber yeah like a microscopic fiber that could be found in like millions of cotton exactly t-shirts. exactly yeah. but they took it as evidence also right also introduced into evidence was a knife that they had found in the lake be- behind Jason Baldwin's trailer they found like a nine inch knife with a serrated blade. And there were cuts and abrasions on the boys' bodies, which the medical examiner came up and basically said it could have been made with a knife like that. Although there was zero evidence that this was, in fact, the knife used. There was no evidence that that <laughs> no, was the, it the knife might that he be. used. So, <laughs> and it was found in a lake behind. I mean, it was like a trailer park that Jason Baldwin lived in. So if found, that could have been like anybody's knife. They found a knife in a public area (laughs) and that it was said that it's possible that the knife wounds on the victims could have come from a knife that was similar to that right and how the fuck did that even make it to the courtroom again it was allowed into evidence Uh that's the most ridiculous thing that's like if they went to target and bought a knife and said well this knife that we got at target isn't the murder weapon but it was you know we got it. We just bought it at a Target. Anyone can buy it, and it a knife was used in the event uh, in this attack. And this is also a knife. So, <laughs> so there you go. go clearly, right. clearly they're guilty. Yeah, I mean it, it. It boggles the mind. It really does. In 1996, the case gains national attention because the the film Paradise Lost, the documentary, uh, premieres on HBO. And it suggests that Eccles, Baldwin, and Miss Kelly were wrongfully convicted. Correctly suggests, I would add. As it turns out. So the three at that time are coined the West Memphis Three. A website goes up to um, try and help support efforts to free them and to exonerate them. Two additional documentaries are filmed. And as the case gets more and more attention, a lot of celebrities jumped on board and started supporting them and trying to get the... I I seem to remember hearing about the West Memphis Three from like popular music at the time, like maybe Rage Against the Machine or something. It was Eddie Vedder of Pearl Jam. Was that what it was? Yeah, Eddie Vedder was like a huge... um, Advocate. Yeah, advocate for them, as was Johnny Johnny Depp. Depp. Yeah, Yeah. Johnny Depp was... That's that's, that's what it was. Sorry, carry on. No, sorry. <laughs> Johnny Depp and then uh, the Dixie Chicks oh, right. were also uh, pretty adamant about their innocence. 
and they caused a, a cyclone of shit storm throughout the pop country world too at that time because of it too there must have been some mtv thing about it as well mm-hmm. oh yeah there there was lots of interviews that they all gave about it i think the dixie chicks on one of their concerts had also said before they went on to perform they made a statement about it so there was a lot of publicity yeah it was a big surrounding deal. this case over the years a lot of errors come to light about this case <laughs> and i think probably nothing would have been done about them had it not gained so much attention now the first one would be the mysterious man at bojangles restaurant so the night that these boys are missing around 8 p.m a man had entered the bojangles restaurant and according to the restaurant's manager the man was covered in blood and mud and his trousers were soaked with water up to his knees He went into the women's restroom where he stayed for a long time. After the guy leaves, they call the police department, the West Memphis police. Mm -hmm. But the officer who responded just took a report from the drive-thru window. Like, (laughs) (laughs) I read that and I was like, are you kidding me? It's like, I can't even read through it with a straight face because, yeah, no. She just went through the drive through window, like she's taking an order to get a statement on why they were called. Doesn't even get out of the car and actually walk into the fucking restaurant. I mean, Jesus Christ. So the employees basically told them what happened. And since, you know, they only kind of like took the statement and drove on, they went ahead and felt that they had to go ahead to clean up the bathroom, which they did. Hmm. No more blood stains to test. The police did return a few days later, but they still managed to still find some blood to sample. Oh. Wouldn't you know, they lost the evidence. Huh. So, so they... it, never, it never made it back to the police station. Apparently, they went back and did see that there was some blood stains still remaining after the employees had cleaned the bathroom. They took samples of that, but what happened to those samples, nobody fucking knows. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> Not very well documented. Mm-mm. Some other things that would come up over the years. Uh, October 2003, Vicki Hutchinson, remember her? Yep. yep. The one the who basically put Jesse Miskelly on the radar with her claims that her and Damien and Jesse had gone to the SBAT. Well, she told an Arkansas Times reporter that everything she told the police was a lie and suggested that the police had warned her that if she did not cooperate in their investigation, that her child would be taken away. Oh, great. Now, yeah. I'm not sure how much credit you can put to that statement either. I think she was actually kind of possibly in trouble over something else. She had some other legal troubles going on. Yeah. And so and definitely... I can see the police kind of strongly suggesting that if she had in, any information that would help. And she's also definitely interested in that 35000 mm-hmm. So if she had any information that would help, it would probably help her with her other legal troubles. I don't doubt at all that there was a lot of lying on her part and maybe some coercion on the police's part. But nevertheless, 10 years later, she basically says it was all a lie. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yep. I made the shit up. Now, remember the uh, the cuts that, you know, might have been done with the same knife that was found in the lake 
one that could one could buy at Walmart and right. throw in the lake. <laughs> In 2007, uh, lawyers working for Damien Eccles hired an expert pathologist, medical examiner. His name is Dr. Werner Spitz, or Werner Spitz. I don't know how it's pronounced. But he determined that those cuts were not made by a knife at all. Oh. That was actually caused by wild animals. He did say that. He believed it was snapping turtles because they were common and indigenous to that area, and they would do exactly what it looked like happened to those bodies. Yeah, they have some uh, killer killer jaws, killer beaks. Yeah. Did you ever They'll see the reptile guy? Off. Remember the reptile yeah, guy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he would have that huge snapping yep. turtle. Oh, my God. I am, like, terrified of snapping turtles. Yeah, they'll yeah. take off bits. Yes, they will. Definitely. Mm-hmm. And apparently... It would have also accounted for the genital mutilation of yep. Christopher Byers. Oh, yeah. So Soft, no cuts were bites. made with any knife. No, turtle bites. It was actually turtle bites. There was also other, you know, cuts and slices that they had tried to attribute to, like, you know, torture done by them. He said they were claw marks and that they should have obviously been identified as animal claw marks. They were obviously animal marks. It wasn't even like that could be. It's like, no, it's fucking animal marks. It's, yeah, I mean, it's like basically they saw scratches on the bodies and it was like, okay, obviously these kids were tortured with a knife. <laughs> even the medical examiner decided that that's what those were. And that, you know, the knife found like probably could have done it. Oh, man. One of the other things that made me laugh about the evidence too that they were talking about when they revisited it was that some of the evidence collected from the scene was in a fast food bag that still had the name of the store on the front of the bag in official documented evidence. Wow, because that's the proper way to... Uh... <laughs> right. <laughs> that's how you store stuff, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's fucking awesome. Also in 2007, some new evidence came to light, which would be DNA from a strand of hair that was found in the bindings of Michael Moore. And so it was like kind of like in woven into like the shoelace that he had been hogtied with. Oh, okay. Now the hair did not match either of the three teenagers convicted. It did, however, match Terry Hobbs, which was the stepfather of Stevie Branch. Hmm. Yes. Interesting. Yes. Now, it wasn't like a 100% match, but it was very close. The private investigator had gotten DNA samples from both Terry Hobbs and John Mark Byers, which was the stepfather of Christopher Byers. He had kind of come under scrutiny because you got to watch the documentary. <laughs> you just got to watch this guy. He was like kind of like the star of the show because he was just a real winner. Oh, my gosh. Like, he's just a, a winner. I mean, his behavior is just so crazy. <laughs> he doesn't act like any person should act. No. And I mean, he there's a scene where he's like shooting pumpkins. He's like, this is Damien Nichols right here. Here you go, Damien. Here's a bullet for you. And I mean. Very stereotypical. Right. And I'm sure he was kind of. Not portrayed in the best light by the documentary. Yeah. And he was a little, he did admit that he was probably drunk through most of it. And yeah, they kind of, you know, played that up. But he didn't make it e difficult for them to cut it 
for right. him to like yeah to i mean he made the him. editor's job real easy <laughs> yeah, edit him into a yes, poor light. exactly yeah. exactly so at one point scrutiny was kind of on him because he just behaved so weird and he'd also given the producers a, a pocket knife that had belonged to christopher byers that they saw had blood on it oh and possibly there. was his blood christopher byers blood but nothing really came about that. That was actually part of Baldwin and Eccles' trial was him having to kind of go up and say where the knife came from because at the time they were they were filming this while the trial was going on. But yeah, it didn't come yeah. Out to like two years later. But wow. But yeah. So this private investigator had obtained DNA samples from John Mark Byers and from Terry Hobbs. So Byers was excluded, as were the three teenagers. But the sample closely matched Terry Hobbs. Now, it also comes to light that police never questioned Terry Hobbs. Oh, and this guy. (laughs) This guy right here. That's interesting. Yeah, interesting because usually when kids are murdered, uh, it's pretty standard to question those who are closest to them yes because yeah, they're trying to personality profile the murdered victim so they can start to reach out from there you know but they just skipped over that i guess because you know they knew who who did it yeah. right off the bat Eccles finally killed someone exactly so they had never even taken a statement from terry hobbs as to where he was the night of the murders and so on and so forth. Hmm. <laughs> little, a little bit of an oversight, just a tiny oversight. Finally, in 2007, he was officially interviewed. They do have the tape out there on YouTube. He doesn't admit to anything, of course. Right. Why would you? Right. But his ex-wife who was the mother of Stevie Branch now believes that he likely murdered her son and the other two boys. Wow. One of the things that leads her to believe this is that she found a safe deposit box, which had like a partial denture that he used to wear. Huh. And also Stevie's pocket knife was found. Oh, and is this a pocket knife that he was like known to carry or whatever? Yeah, she says that he was carrying it up until the day he died. Oh. It now, was his favorite Boy Scout knife. Mm-hmm. I see. Now, Hobbs says that he had taken the knife away from him a long time before the murder happened. He couldn't say when, but... It was a long, t- long it time. It was a long time long ago. Time. He had taken he that knife it. away from him prior it. to that. You would think Mom would have found out at some point that old boy wasn't carrying his pocket knife on him anymore, considering... They were all proud scouts. That was one of the things that went on with those kids that got murdered. They were all proud Boy Scout. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, you think Mom would have heard about that. And wh- and she couldn't figure out a reason why he would hide his dentures in a safe deposit box unless he didn't want it to be matched up with something. Oh. Because in addition to the animal bite marks, there was one bite mark on Stevie Branch's face that it could have been human. Interesting. Now, there's this is out there on the web, but it doesn't draw any official conclusions, I think, probably because legally they can't. But it shows 
imprints of the partial denture of Terry Hobbs and like a photograph of the bite mark found on the kid's face and then like an overlay, which looks to me like it would be a match, but it doesn't officially say it's matched. It's just like this. The results are presented here in these photographs. This is what it looks like. This is what it looks like and doesn't speculate further upon it. Just gives you the information and that's all it does. Exactly. July 2008. Evidence surfaces that the jury foreman. So that's the like guy, the person in charge of the jury, basically, like gets yes. to speak for him and yes, the gets guy... to sit closest to the judge and whatever. Yeah. And this was in the Eccles and Baldwin case. He discussed the case with an attorney prior to deliberations. And oh, really? There's actual notes where it references Jesse Miscully's confession. Now, that was to be inadmissible in the case against Baldwin and Eccles. The jury was not supposed to know about it or discuss it or allow it to influence their deliberations in any way. The cases there were was. separated for that purpose. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. but there, there it was. But there it was. This guy knew about it and also talked to the jury about it. And it was pretty clear that the jury was influenced by that confession. That's it's not ideal. So in November 2010, finally, the Arkansas Supreme Court decides that they have to do a new trial for these three. Because of the DNA evidence, the juror misconduct, just... All this stuff that has come to light since yeah, they were convicted. Yeah. All the evidence that they now have. <laughs> right. And, and given and like I said, I think all along the way. Even that huge amount of evidence might that might not have happened had it not got so much publicity. Yeah. yeah. Not only was all this evidence discovered that basically pointed to somebody else being the killer, the public knew about it. The general public knew about it. Yeah, yeah. Even I knew about it. Yeah, so something had to be done. But rather than do a new trial, the three were offered what is called an Alford plea. An Alford plea is basically, they can still maintain their innocence, but in the eyes of the law, they're pleading guilty. They're saying that there's enough evidence to convict them in a court of law. So all kind of like a no contest. Like, we say we're innocent, but we can't prove it. So we'll just say we're guilty to let things move on. But they're still allowed to profess their yeah. innocence. Yeah. Like, we're innocent, even though they said we were guilty, but when we can say that because of this plea. Yeah. On August 19, 2011, Eccles, Baldwin, and Miss Kelly enter their alpha pleas, their guilty pleas, and are released. Now, Jason Baldwin at first had not wanted to do the Alfred plea because... The state basically said this was like an all-or-nothing deal. Either you all submit the Alford plea, or none of you <laughs> go free. Yeah. And where he was willing to hold out his own freedom. I mean, imagine this. You've been serving, I mean, 2011, so it's 18 years. Yeah. You have been in prison for 18 years for something you did not do. Yeah. But he was so... He did not want to have to even now submit that 
Alfred plea because he didn't want to admit to something he hadn't done. Yeah. Even if it meant freedom after 18 long years. Yeah. But. And they were saying he was becoming institutionalized by that point, too, because he had a a decent paying job for prison life, you know? Yeah. Uh, He was, you know, well-liked because he was a model prisoner because he hadn't really, he's kind of slow, but he didn't actually do anything wrong. And uh, he was learning and going to school. And oh, was this maybe Miss Killy that you're talking about? Oh, am I on the wrong side? Wrong guy? <laughs> oh, I was talking about Baldwin. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, My bad. but but yeah, no, I mean that makes sense too for Miss Kelly. Yeah. And I think Baldwin was just so, you know, just did not want to admit. Yeah, he was wrongdoing. Yeah. He did agree to it though because. Of Damien Eccles' death sentence. Yeah, he, he had a, a finite amount of time. Yeah, Didn't want to see him die. Right. As he put it, they're trying to kill Damien, so that's what caused him to go ahead and, and, and agree to the deal. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's pretty... Um, I think this is in maybe like the third documentary. I didn't watch the, the, the two subsequent ones all the way through but in the third documentary it does show the press conference and jason baldwin is basically saying that you know he did this because of eccles and then eccles basically says like i know like how hard it was for jason to to do this and that he did this to save my life and then they hug and it's just like oh yeah, it's just fuck. God. You just think about like what these guys went through. Right? Hell. <laughs> yeah. Jesus. Yeah. So currently, Jamie Nichols lives with his wife Lori in Salem, Massachusetts. All right. Salem witch trials. You know. Yeah. He felt it was kind of fitting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Although I don't, I, I believe that the current day, the present day Salem, Massachusetts, is not. Where the witch trials actually were. Oh, I think they were they were in a town close by. Well, they have a monument to it there. Yeah, whatever. But it yeah. was all about the association, anyways. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty sure because uh, he was he himself was the victim of a witch hunt and was nearly indeed murdered due to it. Indeed. Jason Baldwin moved to Seattle in 2011. Really, at the urging of Eddie Vedder, he said he thought it would be <laughs> a good fit for him. Yeah. Yeah. So he married this gal, uh, Martha Leverett, who had written a book while he was still incarcerated called The Devil's Knot, which was, you know, a book trying to show that they were innocent of, uh-huh. of the crimes. And it actually got made into a movie. He helped produce it. It stars Reese Witherspoon. Oh, damn. Yeah. So it's a it's a real movie. It yeah, is a real movie. A-list on there. Yeah. And it's also titled The Devil's Knot. Now, I couldn't find it for free anywhere, and I really wanted to watch it for the purposes of this show. Yeah. But I gotta tell you, I was I was sick as fuck, and I actually rented it through Amazon. Which really? I, like, I think it's the first movie I've ever rented through Amazon. And how was it? Paid the two ninety nine. I fell asleep both times <laughs> I tried to watch it. I had it for 48 hours. And I tried to watch it like three different times, and each time I would fall asleep because I was just wow at the height of my sickness. <laughs> Nicely done. Nicely done. So, the pacing is moderate at best. <laughs> I can't 
honestly say how good of a movie it was. I saw, you know, mostly I, the only thing I remember about it is like the first like 15 minutes. <laughs> you saw that? Yeah. You're very familiar with the first 15 I'm minutes. I'm very familiar with the first 15 minutes of it and then uh, nothing. So. Also has Colin Firth in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I think the gist of it is basically the current theory now is that. So Reese Witherspoon plays Pam Hicks, who is the mother of Stevie Branch, who was married to Terry Hobbs who now thinks that he and his friends are the ones who are actually the real murderers. Mm, yeah. It uh, didn't do very well. Rotten Tomatoes has it as like around a 21%. So, you know. There's that. You Yeah, but you never know that. I mean, sometimes. Right. I mean, I've, that I've, could all be I've liked and enjoyed plenty of movies that yeah. were shitty on Rotten Tomatoes. Exactly. Right. Jesse Miskelly is the only one to have gone back to West Memphis following his release. Wow. So he went back to that town. He's kind of a recluse. Yeah. Can, uh... Nobody <laughs> really knows what's going on with him. Um, in 2013, this was also in one of the documentaries, I think. It shows reporters spotting him, and he like literally just like runs from them. And then his dad kind of steps in. And they're like, oh, why Why did he run away from us? And he's like, uh, because you guys are the ones. Because y'all suck. Yeah, because you guys suck and you guys are the ones who sent him away in the first place. Why do you I think? don't know why Jesse doesn't come to the church socials. Right, yeah. That's pretty much what's currently going on. That's it. So they're... With the West Memphis Three to this day. They're uh, free. Terry Hobbs is, yeah, Terry Hobbs has never been charged and he's never been made an official suspect. It's now 26 years since just kind of shrugged the murders and still nothing official other There's than theories out there but yeah. they aren't pursuing anything. You know, one thing I wanted to point out is which is interesting is uh John Mark Byers, you know, the the really wacko guy from the Document the stepfather yeah, of Christopher yeah, Byers. Yeah. So he was so adamant that these three were guilty of killing his stepson and the other two boys. But once the new evidence came to light, now he is like kind of like one of their most outspoken defenders. <laughs> yeah. Which is very hey, interesting. Well. Yeah. And he seems to have cleaned up a lot. Good. And he admits to kind of his his own that yeah, like yeah his behavior was all messed up because he was he, drunk all he the was time, drunk all yeah, the time and... that'll happen that will yeah. happen but that is how it's supposed to work when you're presented with new evidence you go oh hey maybe i was wrong yeah, yeah let me change yeah. my opinion based it's okay, upon it's okay this to new do evidence. that mm-hmm, so which is what all these <laughs> which is what all these juries and stuff and judges and police departments haven't been doing they're like new evidence ah oh, fuck it let's go get a donut instead so it's yeah, and it just kind of boggles the mind if this guy was able to be, you know, convinced of the truth and change his very astute opinion that <laughs> right they were guilty. I mean, like, why can you know perhaps some of the more educated people involved in the case, you know, why was it so difficult? To... Maybe when you're used to being right, there's it, it, it just it goes against your ego to admit that you were wrong. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. 
something like that, but that that's the West Memphis Three. And the West Memphis Three. You got something for us there, new guy? Oh, I just read a bit about the uh, the rise of the Satanism in metal also, because that was going on during the same time in the 80s as the daycare. And it kind of touched, they they touched over and stuff too. And it also went into the mess, West Memphis 3. And also that it touched on that case that you were talking about originally, Joanna there, the, what was his name, Worthing? Willingham. Willingham. Yeah. And uh, how, you know, like when the when the Satanism was getting rampant and they were targeting, I mean, the PMRC, they targeted other bands like Cindy Lauper for lewd uh, lyrics and and uh, who was it? The Rump Shaker, uh, Two Life Crew, yeah, you know, oh, yeah. And, and Prince, but and like Twisted Sister for violent lyrics. And uh, but there was a few of them like uh Merciful Fate and Iron Maiden and Judas Priest and Bathory was a more underground one. And that led to during the 90s, while this stuff was going on, the West Memphis Three, um, what was also helping to stir up the hive of satanic panic um, that was also involved in everybody that was investigating the daycare murders, because you still had those drawing out and stuff at that time. Um was that all of these bands had started to take this more seriously in what was the second wave of black metal. And now you got guys over here who are saying, well, we're not, we're, fuck you guys and your Christianity and everything. We're going to actually do this shit. And they started burning churches and there was murders that went on. That'd be like the mayhem and, and those. Yeah, and so all of these all these people that were studying this satanic and involved in these satanic trials and stuff going on, they were going, see, we told you, we told you, it's this music that's causing them to do these satanic rituals and, and the devil's taken them. And, and it, it was crazy. And that hysteria was just insane. And it was like the very definition of insanity because they just kept doing the same thing over and over again, like going to these experts that don't know shit, you know, and saying, hey, these guys are experts. They know exactly what they're talking about. We're going to go ahead and throw this guy on death row because these experts know what they're talking about. And that's just not the case. They're, they're, yeah. they're They may be experts, but they're not experts in what they're claiming to be experts in. <laughs> It was pretty cool when you got me started on this whole, you know, you wanted to do the Satanic Panic one, and I started diving into it, because I remember a lot of the stuff going on from various different aspects, but actually diving into it and then seeing how all of this shit went on and how it was all intermixed, and you can see where there are certain aspects of religion that like to keep people ruled by fear, and by the 80s, after the fundamentalists had got helped get to power by helping politicians and getting behind politicians they widely regard ronald reagan as one of their very first uh politicians that they stood 100 percent behind and got him in well you also remember that nancy reagan was a driving force behind all those senators that had nothing better to do and formed the pmrc nancy and reagan so who is possibly the daughter of aliester crowley right but <laughs> no one's actually really 100 percent on that but there is a speculation of that Plus, and so at this time, you've also got a very strong fundamentalist Christian 
ethos going on in politics. And we've since seen what happens with all of these fundamentalists who, you know, support all of these good ethics and be good and blah, blah, blah. And they're the ones that are actually out there doing cocaine off of male strippers' dicks, you know. Male and, sex workers. And so it made... Part of the reason all of this evidence got pushed through, I believe, is because they needed targets. They needed boogeymen. They needed demons. They needed people to point at and go, see, this is bad. Satanism, it's the great bad. This is what's causing all of your children to do bad. But as you pointed out in that last episode is, you know, actual fundamentalist Satanism is really not evil at all it's all about being yourself and blah 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 and you know hippie stuff there oh yeah yes. there's some hippie groups of, satanists <laughs> yeah, there's some groups of satanists that are atheist yep and they are like super like it has nothing actually. to do with yeah. gods and stuff yeah like not at that. all it's just it's just a word and just like the oh, wiccans and stuff no they're not fucking satanists they like mother nature and shit how can that be bad you know right mm -hmm. But, Which we talked about in our witches episode. Mm -hmm. Well, the, just the hypocrisy behind it all is just, ugh, I just hate it. Yeah. But by raising these boogeymen up, all of a sudden now they've got targets that they can say, see, this is bad. So all of their flock that's coming every Sunday to their church is going, thank you for pointing out these great evils to us. You don't lie to us. You are our voice. You are the voice of God. So now it's much easier to control them. Right. Oh, yeah. Yep. Fear and shame are mm -hmm. like the two main tactics that the church uses to control the populace. It works like a charm. Oh, right? it sure does. It sure does. Now, also, the fact that so many big names in entertainment perpetuated satanic panic. I think I talked about the Geraldo Rivera episode yeah. Oh, yeah. on, our, <laughs> That's on our, our last uh, episode there. There was one thing that I took note of from that particular episode of Geraldo that I just wanted to th quickly throw out there. He had a police officer on there describing a murder-suicide that he had encountered that was related to Satanism, of course. Of course. Of course. This involved a 14-year-old Boy Scout named thomas sullivan jr Tommy. boy scouts are noted for their satanic tendencies by the way <laughs> he murdered his mother betty ann age 37 in the basement of their home in jefferson township new jersey he was then found the next day in in the yard of a neighbor's house with his throat and wrists cut in an apparent suicide hmm now, the kid had a satanic Bible oh, man. and other right. like occult reading material, which allegedly he had put in front of the living room couch and set fire to them in an attempt to burn the house down because wow. that's how you do his father and his younger brother were also present in the home. So the story that the police are putting forth is that. He murdered his mother. They were arguing over his satanic tendencies. Yeah, as as one obviously. does. Obviously. Yeah. He murders her with his Boy Scout pocket knife. Because takes that's all of his, super easy to do. Takes his <laughs> satanic Bible and all of his occult 
material. Of, of course. Sets it on fire in the living room couch in an attempt to burn the house down and also kill his father and brother. Yes, that's... Then he goes into the neighbor's yard where he cuts his wrists and his throat himself all with very, his Boy Scout knife. All very sound. With his Boy Scout knife. With his Boy Scout with knife. Boy Scout now, what's... Yeah. Now, have you seen a Boy Scout knife? Yes. <laughs> okay. So it's we're basically all just a pocket knife. I mean... Right? Yeah, like a Swiss Army knife. With like a three little three-inch blade. Not that you couldn't kill yourself or kill somebody else with it, but it's going to take a lot of rage, a lot of anger, maybe some precision, ninja-like precision, you know. You have to be pretty compliant to kill someone else with it. Well, the thing that really stuck out to me in the Geraldo Rivera episode, and the cop was describing Tommy's suicide as the worst self-mutilation he had ever seen in his career. So really playing it up. Yeah. I mean, just really, you know, putting the drama on extra thick. Oh, yeah. But he said that Tommy had sliced his wrist so deeply that it cut the tendons in his wrist to where the wrist that he cut was just like hanging off. So how would he have cut the other wrist and then his throat unless... Well, I don't think... It never says that he cut... Both his wrist. Oh, okay. I was just I was the thinking, one. Oh, okay. But okay, you think you cut your wrist to down to the tendon, so it's going to be spurting blood. Yeah. You've you've cut you've severed that artery. Uh-huh. He then said that his throat was cut so deep he could see his spine in the wound. So think Nicole How, Brown Simpson. Yeah, yeah. Like he said, it, he had almost decapitated himself cutting his throat. How do you do with that? With a Boy Scout knife. With, with the a Boy, Boy Scout, Scout knife. And how do you do that? If you are already bleeding out, I can see maybe getting the knife stabbed in until you hit that carotid artery. But then you're yeah. done. You don't. You can't saw your own head off. That's no. why I was saying oh, no, we're all can't. familiar with the Boy Scout knife. Now, to actually kill yourself is going to take either a lot of rage or some ninja-like precision, because that blade's not big enough. There is no fucking way you're going to saw your head damn near off. I have if you're already bleeding right here. Yeah, yeah. this is what we're talking about, the equivalent of right here. It's not even as long as my middle finger, the blade. Yeah, now, if and... you were a ninja and could tag that right into the carotid artery real fast, yeah, yeah. maybe. But still, I think you would still bleed off before you manage to saw your own head off. Yeah, almost. right. I mean, yeah. I just don't see you can't do that to yourself. Here. <laughs> yeah, you can't if you're do even that to yourself. Able to function after almost cutting off your hand enough to, I mean, yeah, like I said, maybe you can stab a little, do a little, you know, until that yeah. carotid artery gets nicked, and but then that's it. You can't continue to keep sawing through your neck until it's hanging off. No. <laughs> No, you can't. And it's like, does nobody, did the the cop not, or the medical examiner, did, did nobody think that this was weird? Apparently not enough that they wanted to do anything to stop or, you know, say anything during the trial. Because I guess Satanism was the answer. Satanism that was the, is the answer. I mean. <laughs> Isn't it always? Here's my take on this. Either somebody murdered that kid because there's no way he did that to himself. That's what it sounds like to me. Yeah, that's what it would sound like to me, and nobody bothered to investigate it. Or the cop was just totally embellishing and saying things wrong on purpose. Geraldo, because yeah. there, I tried and I tried. All I could find was a couple articles that basically just said what the cop had said, that you know the, the mom was killed and it was due to Satanism. 
father and brother survived because the fire actually didn't burn the house down. There wasn't anything in depth about the wounds that Tommy had inflicted upon himself that I could find in any article. It was only what this guy said on Geraldo. Right. So right. like I if- would I would love to be able to read the medical examiner's report on that and see if that was like actually, Accurate. yeah, if that was just some bullshit or if that was something that was actually recorded. There was a couple of things on Reddit, which basically mirrored my thoughts after watching the show was like, how does anyone think that this is suicide? And yeah, that's fucking crazy. So like I said, either this poor kid didn't kill himself and somebody murdered him and nobody did a damn thing to further investigate it because you know probably there was like an iron maiden poster in his room yeah totally um, jethro toll you know they're heavy metal <laughs> right or the the cop who ran the case was totally embellishing shit for the sake of creating panic to the general public on the Geraldo Rivera show. To get notoriety, to get he's some on fame. Geraldo. Yeah, because he's on Geraldo and may as well man, make... Oh, right? yeah, slight... He almost decapitated himself all in the name of Satan. I mean, it was just... I think it was the Either way, I again. think it's, like, really reprehensible. Yeah, oh, yeah. demons Definitely. Definitely. <laughs> you're, you're putting misinformation out there to create a general panic. That's not by cool, which man. people, That's... innocent people, are getting prosecuted yeah persecuted and too. no probably yeah, persecuted, persecuted and prosecuted ah yeah. uh, it's an age-old tradition too so either way i was really really bothered by that but like i said there isn't anything more that i could really find on that yeah wow deal there and man when you think about that arson case yeah that's... that one guy said 1200 fires he'd investigated and most of them were found to be arson. It's like, how many other people did you convict of arson? Like during the daycare one from last episode, it was like all of those kids, they were like, yep, you've all, you know, been sexually assaulted. And and the case was probably that none of them had been. So I'll close on a statement from Damien Eccles himself in regards to, he actually kind of spoke out about the, the Stephen Avery case, you know, making a murderer. Oh yeah. Yeah. Which he he stands behind Stephen Avery, and this just kind of ties all these wrongful conviction cases together. So in regards to the making the murder case, he said, People have told me over and over that my story is unique. The circumstances of my case, the injustice to the real victims, their families, to the West Memphis Three made for a perfect storm never to be seen again. But lightning does strike twice and many more times after that. My story and Stevens are only two in the vast, impenetrable legal landscape. There you go. There you go. There you go. Well, that has concluded our talk about satanic panic. Thank you, Christopher, for joining us. Well, thanks for having me out. Uh, Be sure to check out Christopher's vocalizations in the... (laughs) Musical groups, What the Fuck, and more importantly, Pill Brigade. Right. You can find us, Stranger Than Podcast, at Facebook, Spotify, Instagram, and Twitter. All either Stranger Than Podcast or just Stranger Than. On Facebook, join our Strange Space group. It's great. Enjoy it. Enjoy us. We'll enjoy you. That sounded weird, but I stick by it. (laughs) If you'd like to donate to the cause... 
Go to patreon.com slash stranger than podcast and drop us some money. One dollar, five dollars. We like it all. It's it's great. It helps buy new equipment. And if you pledge to us five dollars, then we will give you a bonus episode every month. Podbean site, which is where our podcast is hosted, is strangerthanpodcast.podbean.com. Buy a t-shirt, buy a mug, buy a cell phone something, anything with the Stranger Than Podcast logo on it. And that is tpublic.com slash user slash Stranger Than Podcast. Do you have a story? Do you just want to tell us hi? Do you have a suggestion? Give us an email, strangerthanpodcast at gmail.com. And with that, we will talk to you next time. And stay strange. Later.